It took one hero and six organs to save Philip Hank's life, but it never would have happened without a loving wife. I do give her credit. She helped save my life uh, by forcing me to go in. They kept me there at, at the hospital for a month and a half, trying to figure out where this where the source of this pain was coming from. That's Philip Hanks thanking his hero wife for saving his life. I'm Marianne Shuck, your host for Let's Talk Hope, a podcast devoted to sharing stories and turning tragedies into triumphs. I'm delighted today to have with me Philip Hanks, six organ recipient, grateful and devoted husband, father, and grandfather. He has been given a second chance on life so that he can honor his donor and educate his community about organ and tissue donation. Phil, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, Phil, when people talk about organ transplants, it's normally one or two, a kidney, lungs, a heart, pancreas, intestines, but you had a six organ transplant. Tell us about what that was even like. But first of all, tell us how you came to need so many organs. Well, actually, the most recent is a five-organ transplant. But in 2007 is where my story actually begins, where I had my first liver transplant. And basically what happened was I used to be an avid bodybuilder. And with that, I got up to 315 pounds, majority muscle. And I wanted to try to get bigger. My goal was 325. So I wanted about 10 more pounds more of muscle. And I went about doing that the wrong way. So what happened was I began more or less overdosing, which I didn't even know you could overdose on something like protein. But I would get up in the morning before work, pop a 60-gram protein shake, go down into my basement and into the gym that I built down there. I was pretty into bodybuilding, so I had a whole layout. I had the mirrors, the dumbbell rack, a Smith machine, which is a machine where you can lift heavy. You could do heavy bench presses without getting caught under the weights because all you needed to do was flick your wrists and it would lock in place. I had the whole gambit down there. So as I was saying, I would get up in the morning, do a 60-gram protein shake, go in the basement, hit the gym in my basement, come back upstairs, hit another 60-gram protein shake, jump in the shower, and go to work. Phil, that's interesting. And I will say this because I have trouble doing all the protein that I'm supposed to do normal day. So I guess it's interesting that you could as you call it, overdose on that type of protein. But the other thing is you're very tall. So 315 on you was probably very lean, but how much protein should a person sort of at 315 have had to be in the normal range? It's calculated by your body weight. I forgot the exact calculation, but the average amount is usually about 120, give or take. And then you're supposed to get your the rest of your protein from food. Okay. And so what what happened that the protein overdose caused you to, to go into liver failure? Well, I was doing approximately 360 grams of protein per day, five days a week. And that didn't necessarily cause 
my liver to go into liver failure. Basically what happened was that was taxing my liver and kidneys quite a bit. However, the coup de grace was I had an ex-wife and you'll find out why she's an ex in a minute. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I was the breadwinner. She didn't have to work. I took care of her. And with that being said, we went probably, it was probably around three months prior to get tattoos. I had never had a tattoo before. She kept urging me and pushing me to get this tattoo to quote unquote, prove my love. <laughs> and while I was in the tattoo chair, we began arguing something we did quite a bit. And it was about the tattoo. And while we were arguing, the tattoo artist asked me a question that I really should have paid attention to, and I did not, uh, because I was involved in the argument. And he asked if I minded if he used a re-sterilized needle. Yeah, re-sterilized needle is a needle they put in this machine, and it supposedly cleans the needle. They repackage it and reuse it. So I said, yeah, whatever, because, you know, I was kind of upset with my ex and wasn't in the right headspace. So fast forward about three months, and with all the weightlifting, I got up to that 325 that I was trying to get to, but then reverse effects started happening. I started, I had huge loss of energy, was tired all the time. I mean, tired to the point where I could barely function throughout the day. I was barely making it through a work day barely making it through workouts anymore. My energy levels completely dropped. The ex-wife wanted to make sure that if anything was to happen to me with me being the breadwinner, that her and the kids were taken care of. What I did not know <laughs> until State Farm got to my house to do a check. They wanted to do blood work and all these different things. While we were sitting there going through that and they were doing all these tests, I started asking questions as far as, wow, how much is this life insurance for? I mean, do you usually do this just for a regular life insurance policy? What was it, $5 million? Uh, It was half a million. Oh, half a million. Okay. <laughs> That's interesting. I, I didn't know they did that for half a million. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, see, they, they want to be sure for half a million dollars, you're not just going to drop dead on them. <laughs> or or somebody bump you off, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so uh, it was about a week later, they came back and said, no, we're not going to give you that half million dollar life insurance policy and uh, you need to go see a doctor. So so like I said, are you still wondering why she's an ex-wife? <laughs> oh, no, I'm, I, you got me a long time ago. <laughs> the tattoo got me and the re-sterilized needle, you got me. I, I understand. So fast forward, got to the doctor, what did they say? The doctor came back and told me that I had hepatitis C, which they traced back to the re-sterilized needle. Because I was taxing the liver and kidneys the way I was taxing them with the protein, the creatine, and things of that nature, the symptoms began to develop rapidly. So usually they call hepatitis C the silent killer because it takes years for the symptoms to show up. In my case, it took months. Okay. Interesting. So you get this diagnosis, re-sterilized needle, hepatitis C. Is there any recourse to the tattoo parlor so that you can make sure this doesn't happen to anyone else? 
And then this happened rapidly, right? Yes. And so what, how soon did you need the transplant after you got this diagnosis? It was 2004. So by 2007 is how quick that took for me to develop fourth stage liver cancer. Hepatitis C turned into cancerous tumors. So in 2006 is when they they told me, okay, you're you're evolving into stage two, going into stage three. We're going to keep an eye on it. You seem healthy. Everything subsided once I left my ex. The uh, yellowing of the eyes, the itching of the skin. Giants. Yes. The symptoms started subsiding. I wasn't as tired. I could begin to function again. So the doctors told me that that was because it had started going dormant, that it didn't go away, but the tumors were not growing any any larger, and it seemed as though they were going dormant. And at this point, Phil, had they told you that you needed to cut down on the protein, that the protein might be (laughs) exacerbating (laughs) everything? Yes, at that time, yeah, they they definitely told me to cut back. (laughs) Okay. So you have the liver transplant. And then you are doing well for some time. There were a lot of complications with that 2007 liver transplant. Once again, for a couple of years, I was doing fine. And then progressively, I started getting worse. That was due to the fact that I developed diabetes. So in 2005, I developed diabetes. Got back into the gym again. I laid off the gym, but I got back in the gym again because I'm definitely afraid of needles. So... <laughs> <laughs> Deserve it yourself. <laughs> they told me that, uh, yeah, working out could possibly help get me off of the insulin injection that I had to take. So I got in the gym and did what I usually did, which was go nuts. And with that, I did get off of the needle. However, I started earning promotions because I was concentrating on my career, being a single man making sure that I could raise my boys, concentrated on my career and began getting promoted and things of that nature. But with that, as the joke goes, with great power comes great responsibility. So <laughs> my, uh, my work days began to increase to 12-hour shifts, things of that nature. I was working for a pretty big bank, worldwide bank, and the hours were just crazy. So I wasn't able to hit the gym the way I was hitting it before and wound up back on the insulin injections. 2007, I'm sorry, 2006, met my current wife. Life was great until I got the diagnosis that I had developed into stage four liver cancer. And it was at that point I was called in. They put me on a list. I didn't wait on the list very long. That was due to the fact that I, I did elect to take a hepatitis C positive liver which I didn't know you could do, but they gave that to me as an option. And then they cured the hepatitis C after the transplant. Let's talk about that for a moment, because that is actually part of the HOPE Act, which is an act that allows folks with HIV, hepatitis to receive transplants from other folks who have HIV or hepatitis into your point, and then they cure it so that those folks who before would not have had access to a transplant because they had an illness that would prevent organ from being transplanted. So the HOPE Act is pretty spectacular 
in the fact that we can now open up access to transplants to folks who have HIV and hepatitis C. So glad you were able to recognize that you needed to have a liver and that there was an opportunity to be able to get you a liver and to have hepatitis C cured. So pretty awesome. I had no clue about that until it was presented to me. And I really want to say thank you. (laughs) I mean, uh, it was a rough transplant. Basically, I died on the operating table during that transplant. I passed away for three and a half minutes is what I was told. Wow. The new liver had an extra valve that my old liver did not. They sutured that and put me in recovery. And while in recovery, I began bleeding out through that sutured valve. And by the time that it was a nurse that found me, I have an affinity for nurses. Anytime I see a nurse, I tell them, thank you. They do a lot of work and don't get a lot of praise. So... (laughs) That is true. That is so true. It was a nurse that found me, a nurse that began uh, procedures, life-saving procedures, and pretty much was doing it all until the doctors were able to return back to the hospital. They had left. It was 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. They had left to go home or do whatever it is they needed to do and had to be called back to the hospital. And by the time they got me back on the operating table, I crashed. Pretty scary. Yes and no. <laughs> the funny thing about it is my faith had a lot to do with why it was not as scary. I mean, yeah, death is always scary. However, I had made peace with the fact I had never so much as had a broken bone in my body before all of this. And I was pretty nervous, pretty scared. And so I turned to my faith and through my faith, I gained this sense of peace. Didn't know what was going to happen, if I was going to make it through it or not. But uh, before I even went into the operation, I had this sense of peace. And with that, I I didn't even know I had passed. I did see something. (laughs) But to me, I thought it was all a dream in the whole nine yards until it was confirmed that they didn't know what I saw. I didn't know what happened. The doctor and my wife are the, my new wife, on top of that, we were only married seven months. We got married in July. The transplant took place in November. So you, you, you heal from the liver transplant. I heal from that. Life continues to go on. Life was great. <laughs> yeah, new wife. You're happy. She's nursing you through this. And then five organs. What happened? In 2019, I, the two years prior, I was just promoted to IT director. So career was awesome. As you stated, life was grand. And that from that 2007, while in intensive care, I learned that my wife was pregnant with my now, she just turned 14. So I had my little girl, miracle baby is what I call her. And in 2019, took the family to Texas to kind of help celebrate my promotion to IT director to visit other family members for Christmas. While we were there, my youngest son, who was playing on the basketball team, wanted to challenge the old man to a basketball game (laughs) (laughs) to see if I still had it. And of course, I had to oblige and kind (laughs) of teach him a thing or two. But (laughs) Did you win? (laughs) I did. It's always important. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, while we were on the basketball court, a simple move, turned into a lot of pain. Pain shot up my arm and down my back. 
and it began to intensify and grow. From my bodybuilding days, I thought I had just pulled a muscle and was trying to shrug it off. I didn't really do a lot of pain meds. That was not my thing. But I was in so much pain by the time that we got back to my wife's relative's house that I began begging for pain medication. They gave me prescription strength, ibuprofen, 800 milligram tablets. And I was popping two at a time every four hours as instructed on the bottle. But were you eating? With I was eating. I was okay, eating. Good. Mm-hmm. I was eating, drinking a lot of water. But the pain was not subsiding in any way, shape, form, or fashion. Okay. So I did the big no-no. And I went from every four hours to every two hours. Yeah. Every two hours to every hour from every hour to every half an hour until my wife and her family took the ibuprofen from me and refused to give me anymore. So I suffered for three days in pain until we made it back to the Chicagoland area. Once we got back that next morning, because we got in late, the next morning my wife was <laughs> up at him and dressed and told me I was, didn't tell, didn't ask me, told me I was going to the emergency room. I did try to fight and say, well, no, Spent enough time in hospitals, don't want to go back. <laughs> she wasn't hearing it. So I had a guest a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Joseph Kyles, and he was in the same situation. He needed a double lung transplant, obviously didn't want to go. And so as a as a man of faith, I asked him, I said, you know, you hear the stories all the time that men who do not have wives wind up sicker or they wind up dying because the wives are the one, to your point, who notice everything and just insist. And so in this case, you had the same situation <laughs> that your wife could be attributed to helping you to get to this next phase, correct? She probably helped save my life. Don't know that I would have, I would have eventually went because the pain was getting something, it was getting unbearable. But the time factor kind of played into how this all unfolded. So yeah, I do give her credit. She helped save my life uh, by forcing me to go in. They kept me there at, at the hospital for a month and a half, trying to figure out where this, where the source of this pain was coming from. But they were unable to figure out the source of the pain. This was the same hospital that did that 2007 transplant. And what they told me was, you need a new, new liver and your kidneys are shot. You need a new kidney. And was the new liver as a result of popping all those ibuprofen? So basically what happened was the kidneys never fully recovered from when I went into renal failure and passed away in 2007. Gotcha. And the kidneys, which I did not know, uh, I got a lot of education. (laughs) But the kidneys don't have to function at 100%. They can function all the way down to 30%. If, uh, if memory serves me correctly. Um, and my kidneys were functioning at about 70%. They never fully recovered from uh, the renal failure that I went into when I passed away in 2007. Right. But still, so the audience knows, but still 70% is not bad, right? It's, it's not bad. No. Yeah. And basically between the diabetes and the diabetes is what was pretty much pushing the kidneys over the edge. But the ibuprofen was the straw that broke the camel's back. Correct. 
it's interesting because we all hear that, right? Um, I think it makes a lot of people afraid to take medicine, prescription medicine, ibuprofen, Advil, and the like, because you hear if you take too many, if you don't eat, then it can cause you to go into organ failure. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so they told me that I had fourth stage kidney failure. Okay. Stage four. And that I needed, yeah, and that I needed a new liver. The kidney failure, the kidneys beginning to fail again, began to put stress on the liver. Okay. So now we're at three organs. So we're at three organs now. How did we get to five organs? Well, that was a pretty interesting event that took place. So the hospital that did the first transplant told me that they could not do the next transplant, but they never explained why. I then transferred to another hospital, a very well-known high-caliber hospital here in the Chicagoland area. And they did everything that they could do with the explanation that they gave me and the reason why the first hospital refused to do the, the next transplant. What happened was during the 2007 transplant, with them trying to save my life and everything, scar tissue developed in the pulmonary vein. The pulmonary vein is the main vein that runs down the center of your body and feeds all your major organs. So with the main pulmonary vein being scarred up, it, was, it became blocked. And the body is pretty resilient. This hospital taught me a lot about the body and anatomy and a lot of the stuff that was very interesting. So with that vein being blocked, what the body did was it began sprouting these other little veins around the blockage to keep the organs going as best as the body could. But it wasn't enough to sustain a new liver and kidney. Okay. So what this hospital did was they tried everything in their power to reopen that pulmonary vein by putting in stents and clearing out as much scar tissue as they could. They tried three times and they failed three times. And the doctor came back and began to tell us that there was nothing else that they could do. My wife, once again, a person who was telling me, well, I'm not trying to collect on a life insurance policy on you. I, I, want, I want you around. I need you around here. So... <laughs> which was pretty refreshing compared to the, the <laughs> last, last one. <laughs> <laughs> so with that being said, she began asking a lot of questions and pushing the doctor to come up with some type of solution. And the solution that he, the only thing he had left to offer was there was a doctor in Indianapolis that did these unorthodox transplants. And he set up a meeting between myself, my wife, and that doctor. And we got the meeting, got there, and what he told me put me on the floor, literally. During the consultation, he was trying to decide if he even wanted to take the case because my case was so complicated. Okay. And he decided he would take the case, and he told me that it would be a 50-50 chance, that he was not convinced that this would go well, but he did want to give me another chance at life. And with that, he began to tell me what he was going to do. So he said he was going to cut above the pulmonary vein and above the scar tissue and remove all the organs attached to that piece, find a donor, and then cut above the pulmonary vein out of the donor and then reattach the pulmonary vein along with the organs that was connected and replace those in me. So with that, 
that included a stomach, which I didn't even know you could transplant a stomach, mm-hmm. kidney, pancreas, upper lower intestine, and liver. And the phenomenal thing is you hear about organs transplanted, right? You hear one organ, two organ, three organs, five organs, right? But they go to different people. Correct. What type of donor, and can you tell us a little bit about your donor in terms of one donor was able to provide you all of these organs and the pulmonary vein? I don't know much about my donor, but what I do know is, because I I thought it was ironic, the donor came from the Chicagoland area because my organs, the doctor had to fly from Indianapolis while I was in the hospital there. So I was driving to Indianapolis while at the same time he was flying to the Chicagoland area. To, to procure the organs. To procure the organs. And he always inspected and procured the organs himself. Mm-hmm. So we were doing this round robin type deal. I do know that my organ donor was a young individual in his early 20s. I have written the donor family a thank you letter. Because organ donation is something, number one, it's, it's, a, it's a godsend. My life would have been cut short. The doctors did tell me that. They gave me a time frame and how much longer I had. So it, it's a godsend. And I can't speak, I can't say enough about how organ donation and that whole practice, it's a lifesaver. It's My organ donor was a hero, someone who I did not know, who signed the back of their license, saved my life. So, Phil, you have this five organ transplant and you wake up. What was that like? That was extraordinary as well. This whole ordeal, once again, I I have to give all uh, glory and credence to God because when I woke up, I was in pain, but it wasn't pain that was unbearable. I was able to speak to my wife. We talked the whole nine yards. I wanted to be taken off the breathing tube shortly after waking up because that breathing tube is like trying to breathe through a straw. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> and uh, against doctor's orders, I mean, because I literally begged my wife to beg them by writing to her because, uh, of course, I couldn't speak with the tube in. So I'm scribbling on the page, please, please get them to take this tube out. And they were very hesitant, but they went ahead and after about 30 to 45 minutes, they took the tube out. And they really, truly did not want to take it out. I began breathing on my own and everything was fine. They were amazed. Uh, The next day, because it was a two-day surgery. So the first day they put four organs in, and then the next day they put the kidney in. They kept telling me that the breathing tube would probably have to go back in. I would wake up on the tube again, et cetera. But that didn't happen. Uh, And the next day when I woke up again, um, I I felt great. You know, yeah, I was in a lot of pain. um, But the pain meds that they were giving me was taking care of that for the most part. And I just, I remember when I woke up, I, I cried because I was like this, I feel so much better than what I felt before going under. 
And I also cried because I was like, okay, I'm a, I'm awake. I, I'm not sitting here speaking and no one can hear me. So <laughs> that means I'm in the physical realm. <laughs> and a day and a half after that, I got up and uh, once again, the doctors wanted me to take it easy. I fought to let them, let me get out of the bed and take my first steps. And all of that is captured on video and it's been recorded. And that's been in news articles, Inside Edition, et cetera, and so forth. And you, you get out of the hospital, you're doing phenomenal. You get out of the hospital and all of a sudden COVID happens. Actually, that was during COVID. All of this took place during COVID. Thank God, knock on wood. I have not, to the best of my knowledge, because something did happen when I was in the hospital for that month and a half, but COVID wasn't even out at that point, particular time. But I had all the symptoms of COVID while I was in the hospital. But yeah, it, it wasn't that happened. I was getting out in February. February of 2020? Yeah. Mm -hmm. The end of February, beginning of March. Right, right before. The March, the lockdown was March 17th. I'll never forget it. <laughs> exactly. And I got out of the hospital that first week in March. Yeah. That, yeah. So it was in that February time period that I got real ill while I was in the hospital. Yes. But since then, I have not had any, I, I haven't gotten COVID or anything to that nature. So to me, that's just another... <laughs> Another miracle that I call them small miracles. Of course, the transplant was a huge miracle. Yes. I mean, Phil, you are a walking miracle. Your doctor and your hospitals that supported you through this process are heroes. But your wife has to be the biggest hero for you, yeah. although you are a miracle and you have done such amazing advocacy. You now work for the Secretary of State. You're continuing to share your story as this walking miracle who walks in faith. Mm -hmm. It's it's very important for people to understand that Organ transplants are lifesavers, yeah. right? They they change the trajectory of your life. They change the trajectory of your family's life. Because of this one donor, your daughter is 14. You're able to see that. I was able to meet your beautiful family and your granddaughter, yes. right? This is something that you said the doctor gave you 50-50, right? But now here you are on the other side of that 50-50, being an incredible advocate, what would you like to tell people, um, particularly about your journey as we talked about, you know, having too much protein, um, living through pain, not recognizing that you need to go to the doctor, you need to do all of these things, but you need to be mindful and intentional about taking care of your health. What will you say to people who might uh, be nursing pain or who might, to your point, uh, be living on ibuprofen and not recognizing the detriment that it causes to your body? What would you say to folks? I've spoken, as you've stated, to a lot of different people. And still, I'm still speaking with people on a day-to-day -day basis that go through exactly that. People who need transplants as well as people who just live in pain. And I would say where there's no hope, there's no future. So don't give up hope. I've seen what hope can do. And I've seen people who have given up on hope. 
and just kind of throw it to the wind. And they live on ibuprofen or they live on pain meds, things of that nature. Keep seeking, keep looking for an answer. Don't give up hope. Take care of yourself, your body. <laughs> you got one. Take care of it as best as you you as best as you can. You don't necessarily have to get in the gym and, and try to be the incredible Hulk like myself. <laughs> I've since given up on that myself. But get out and go for a walk instead of sitting behind that computer or sitting on the couch. Get up and go go for a walk. Life is beautiful. I take pleasure now in the most simplest things. Driving down to the state capitol to do the press conference with Secretary White. I took the time. It was a lot of traffic and things of that nature. I took the time to start looking out on the country roads and just looking at life around me. We take life for granted. I did it. There's times where I still fall back into that and I have to remind myself how precious life can be and just take the time, the trees, <laughs> the the ant crawling on the sidewalk, you know, just just enjoy life as, as best as you can enjoy it and don't take it for granted. And listen to your wife and, or and listen to your wife or husband. They could save <laughs> your life. <laughs> It has been an absolute pleasure to have you speak with me today to really enlighten folks on a lot of things. We've talked today about too much protein. We've talked about health. We've talked about the HOPE Act. And we've also talked about the heroes in your life. And I just want to say I'm so delighted to have had you here today to share your story. And I hope you continued success, happiness, health, and enjoying your daughter and your granddaughter. Thank you so much. Thank you. And if I can add one last thing, I really seriously want to thank those that are signed up to be organ donors, because as I stated before, a person such as yourself helped save my life. And you can save so many for people who are thinking about becoming an organ donor. Just think you could save, you could impact 25 lives. One person can impact 25 lives. They can help save lives. They could change people's lives. There's so much about organ and tissue donation that I learned. I never knew that you could donate your retinas and help a person see again. That, that is just amazing to me. Those that donate blood didn't realize how much blood I needed during all of these surgeries. It's a gift. And it's something that, if it's something that you can do, and as we went over during this this episode. If it's something that you could do, you could seriously impact and help save so many lives. It's so important. Yes. And we're so thankful to your donor, your donor family for having said yes and creating the lasting legacy that is you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Let's Talk Hope. We encourage you to start the conversation about organ and tissue donation with your loved ones today and make your wishes known. You can register to become a donor at giftofhope.org. Hello, Tina Montgomery, Supervisor for Community Outreach. In my role, I'm responsible for raising awareness and educating the community about organ, eye, and tissue donation. Daily, I'm asked a lot of questions about donation process and how does it work. So we're going to spin the wheel, answer some questions from our loyal audience. So the wheel is going around and around and around, and it has stopped on question number 22. Number 22 says, 
How do you register your decision to be an organ, eye, and tissue donation? Well, there are several ways you can register your decision to be a deceased organ, eye, and tissue donor in your state. Number one, you can register at your local DMV. You can register in person or online. Just check their local website. You can register on our National Donate Life Registry at registerme.org or you can go to our giftofhope.org and it is there that you will see options to register. Your donor registration is a binding legal document of gift. You can remove your registration, update your personal information, or specify more detailed donation preferences at any time. Any adult age 18 and older can register to be an organ, eye, and tissue donor, regardless of age or medical history. 15 to 17 year olds can register their intent to be organ, eye, and tissue donors in your state or national registry. However, until you are 18 years old, a parent or legal guardian makes the final decision. Both your state donor registry and the national donate life registry are checked by donation professionals at the time of your death. The most recent donor registration is honored as your legal document of gift. That was such an awesome question. Thank you so much for sending it in and keep those questions coming. I want to thank you again for listening to Lights Talk Hope. We encourage you to start the conversation today about organ, eye, and tissue donation with your loved ones and make your wishes known. You can learn more about organ and tissue donation or register your decision at giftofhope.org. If you like what you've heard today, we hope you'll listen again wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Let's Talk Hope was produced by Rivet. And if you'd like to hear more great podcasts, please visit rivet360.com.